So often in life we miss the obvious, and I was reminded of a story that I heard not too long ago about two supposedly, supposedly senile men that were institutionalized in a home that was near the ocean. And uh, they were taken out for a walk one day. These two men were taken out for a walk by their attendant, whose name happened to be Albert. And Albert took these two old men out for a walk, and they were walking along the ocean. And as Albert's walking these two men around, uh, a seagull happens to just kind of fly by. And as seagulls can do on occasions, happen to drop a bomb. And uh, this particular bomb of excrement hit one of these men on the top of the head, this bald man right on the top of the head. And it started to run down the side of his head. And Albert saw this, and he was very concerned. Oh, thanks, Matt, for standing up so people can get a visual, <laughs> visual aid of that. Appreciate that. Um, in case any of you needed a little help there. Uh, the timing is perfect. But uh, anyway, so Albert, the attendant, sees this man with this uh, stuff running down his head. And he says, hang on, hang on, I'll be right back. I'll run up and get some toilet paper. So as Albert's running back up to the home to get the toilet paper, one of the old guys looks at the other guy and says, look at that darn fool running up there. He said, you know, by the time he gets back with that toilet paper, that seagull is going to be about a mile and a half away from here. (laughs) Okay, now, for those of you who are kind of looking at me with that stunned look on their face, and they're not real sure about it, you go ahead and just explain it later after you leave. But what's the point? There's always a point to these. Uh, the point is that, you know, it's the simple things in life that are often the, the most profound. And, uh, you know, and they're the easiest things to miss. During our last two sessions together, we began to address some questions or a question, specific question that was raised in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, where Jesus addressed the issue of, is it possible to love God and to love money? And he went through and explained very clearly that it is impossible to love God and money. You will either love the one and you will despise the other. It's an impossibility to love both God and money. And the problem that we have is we have to ask ourselves the question, how do I know whether I've fallen into the trap of loving the God of money rather than loving God? And so as we have dealt with that, we begin to realize that there are some symptoms or some conditions or signs that we'll, we'll call signs of financial bondage. And what that means in simple terms is that there are some signs or evidence of the fact that our priority system has gotten messed up. The pro- our priority system has gotten messed up. God is no longer first in our life, but now money has taken his place as first in our life. And so we begin to worship the God of money, and we don't even know that we're doing it because it's such a subtle thing. And we need to recognize and look at the symptoms or the signs or the conditions that this is true in our life. And so the first, uh, first couple of weeks, we looked at the first thing was the seven symptoms. Number one was avoiding creditors. Avoiding creditors. It's a sign or a symptom of the fact that God is no longer number one in our life when we're trying to ease our way out of or finagle our way out of or manipulate our way out of or somehow or another get out of an obligation that we have that we owe to another person. And it's a spiritual barometer that says, hey, you know what? Things aren't right in your life as far as your relationship with God. You know, God, throughout the, throughout the Bible, God says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. When you make a commitment as one of God's people, you're to honor that commitment. You're to honor your word. And when you have an obligation, you're to pay back that obligation. It's as simple as that. So we saw that it's the wicked who borrow and don't repay, but God's people are righteous and they also are generous and they give and they return what's owed uh, to other people. The second thing that we saw was that Acting dishonestly is a sign that things are kind of messed up in our life as far as our relationship with God. Acting dishonestly. Better a poor man, Proverbs 19.1 says, a poor man whose walk is blameless, 
who is upright, has integrity before God. And even though he doesn't have anything materially, God says he's much better off than a person who has an abundance of material things and all the money that this world has to offer if he's done it in a way that's not right before God. If he's acted dishonestly or deceitfully and manipulatively, and somehow or another he's, he's manipulated people in order to obtain more things financially, God said the person with nothing is better off than that person. In Proverbs 20, 17, it says that food gained by fraud tastes sweet to a man. Oh, but you know what? But he ends up with a mouthful of gravel. There's that momentary pleasure. And see, and that's why it's, uh, sin is so deceptive. And sin basically is violating the standards of God. That's all that sin means by definition. That God holds a standard and anything that deviates from that standard, that difference is sin. And God says, if my standard is integrity and honesty and, and, and moral purity, and you do something that, that, that falls short of that in order to gain something economically, then that's wrong before God. And you may think you got away with it because there is pleasure to sin, but only temporarily. But ultimately, you wake up with a mouthful of gravel. Tasted sweet at first, but payday someday, says the Lord. One day, one day you'll get caught for doing what you're doing. We need to recognize and understand that. What's interesting is, is that God says if we're in a position where we've deceived people and we've taken advantage of them financially, that we have an obligation to make restitution. So I saw something interesting not too long ago about the, what's called the Conscience Fund of America. It's a fund that was established after income taxes came into place for people who uh, their guilt had driven them to the point where they couldn't sleep at night. And so anonymously they would send in money that they felt that they had owed the government. And there's a huge fund, and millions and millions of dollars have been collected in this fund by people whose guilt had driven them to the point where they couldn't sleep at night. And one particular letter that the IRS had kind of caught my attention, but it was a letter that had money enclosed in it and says, uh, gentlemen or dear IRS or whatever, enclosed is some money that I owe you from taxes that I withheld, and I was deceitful and dishonest about how I did it, and I haven't been able to sleep as a result. So enclosed is a check. Then at the bottom of the letter it says, P.S., and if I continue having problems sleeping at night, I'll send you the balance later. <laughs> I like that. Kind of, you know, making some progress there. Just a, you know, a step at a time. But uh, anyway, acting dishonestly. Make restitution. Now we're going to go through numbers 3 through 7. Some of you feel that that's an absolute impossibility. Knowing, oh, you know, and by the way, too, I want to just, I want to deal with something here. Last week, I brought up a story about the, the people who sold us our house and failed to tell us about how the Santa Ana winds could have a negative effect on our living arrangements. So I bring this story up, and I just want to get something straight right now. This is a disclaimer. Any illustration that I use cannot help be held against me any time in the future whether these things come to pass. I had nothing to do with the fact that all week long the Santa Ana winds have been blowing and half Southern California is burning down. I just want to let you know that right up front in case you're thinking about offering me up to God as a sacrifice or something like that. Anyway, got that done. All right. Number three. Here we go. Three through seven. Get ready. Fasten your seatbelts. We're going into warp factor six or something. I'm not sure. Number three, how do you know that your priorities are messed up and that things are getting a little confused in your relationship with God? We begin to agonize over our investments. In one simple word, it comes down to this. Worry. Worry. When you have no peace of mind, when you have little peace of mind, when you can't see what I put up on here, because uh, you're not sure, there you go. That's why I appreciate the second row. I love you guys. You're always, you're always there for me. You know, sometimes I go like this, <laughs> but thanks for, 
But anyway, agonizing over investments. You have little or no peace of mind. Every thought you have revolves around your financial investments or your financial position. You're worried about your property value. You're worried about your pension funds. You're worried about profit sharing plans. You're worried about your percentage of interest or what interest percent you're going to have, what kind of return on your investment you're going to have. And you're distracted from all the important things of life because here you are agonizing over all these financial concerns that we have. Article in the paper, headline says this, Raising interest rates you earn could lower your husband's anxiety. She is 32. Her husband is 36. They have no children. Quote, just a wonderful dog. He works in commercial real estate and after two layoffs in six years is making about $50,000, the same amount he made 10 years ago. She makes $33,000 as a technical writer and an editor. Their two cars are paid for. They have no other debt other than a $60,000 that remains on their mortgage at 6.875% interest. They have $190,000 in the bank, plus a stock portfolio worth $50,000 started by the husband's father, plus another $100,000 in mutual funds for retirement. They save $2,600 a month, which comes out to $31,200 a year. Yet, as this woman writes this letter, she says her husband is worried that they are not making enough money or saving enough. So I see right now that they're not going to get a whole lot of sympathy from this group. I sense that. I sense that in this group. It's like, hey, now you want us to feel sorry for these people? Hang on. She says her husband is worried about not making enough or saving enough. Quote, we don't subscribe to a newspaper. We don't have cable TV. We eat out maybe twice a month at around $16 a meal. (laughs) That's how they save $32,000 a year. (laughs) No, no, just kidding. Um, All right, all right. We've been to the movies two times in the past nine months, and we went to see Braveheart both times. (laughs) I think you get the idea. We live quite frugally. Well, I'm picking up on that. To me, we're doing well financially. The only downside I see is that we save so much money that there's little left for anything fun. Now, the question that I have in my mind is, what's the problem here? Is the problem they don't make enough interest on the money that they've got in savings? Or maybe the problems and attitude that her husband has when it comes to money. She says, My husband is upset that some of his old college buddies are doing better than he and make a higher salary than the two of us combined. That after being laid off twice, his self-confidence has been shaken that the only way he feels secure is by saving all the money that he can. I get frustrated. My husband doesn't have any fun. I ask him what it would take to have fun. He says maybe a used travel trailer or a used dirt bike. (laughs) Hey, we all have a different definition of fun. That would be nice here. He says, well, go out and buy one. He says, but it will cost $4,000 and we can't afford it. Well, anyway, she says, I've really tried to see his point of view, but I think that having nearly $200,000 in the bank it's not really a question that we can't afford it. I think it's a question of choosing not to afford it, which to me is very different from spending our last $4,000 on a dirt bike. What's the problem? What's the problem? Let me, give you, let, me, let me give you a little insight using them as a backdrop, but I think the problem is fairly explained by Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. We read this. Whoever loves money 
never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep at all. I've seen a grievous evil, evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and, and, that, he, and that he can carry in his hand. This too is grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? You know, and as, I, as I see this, you know, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever trusts in money will never be content. He who is always worrying about money will never be content with the size of a bank account or a retirement fund or an investment portfolio or the value of real estate or property or any, any of those things. He who puts all his trust and faith in money will be severely disappointed because it'll take up wings one day and it'll just fly away, is what God says. See, the problem with this man isn't that he doesn't have enough money. The problem with this man is all his trust is in the money that he has. And there's a big difference between the two. We need to recognize and understand that Proverbs 12:25 says it's an anxious heart that weighs a man down. Have you ever been so worried about money and your finances that you're almost just worn out and so tired you can't do anything? It's just wearing you out. This interest rate, that interest rate, that property devaluation, uh, this turn down, that recession, all this economic bad news that we get hit with on a regular basis and you just get so worn down you can't keep up with it. I can't keep working about all this. What am I going to do? I need more money. You know, it's interesting that uh, according to Worth Magazine survey in 1996, current says that one-third of every adult American loses sleep over financial concerns. What's the problem? The problem isn't whether we have enough stuff. The problem is whether we have enough trust in God who can provide for all of our needs. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me for a second to Psalm 56. Psalm 56 will give us an answer of how to deal with this problem that we have. Because many of us struggle with it. In Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, we read this. When I'm afraid, when I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in thee. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. And because of that, I shall not be afraid. And what can mere man do to me? When I'm afraid, I put my trust in God. When I'm worried, I cast all my cares upon Him because He'll care for me. When I'm afraid of the financial situation that we're in, I put all my trust in God. In Psalm 127, we read a similar thought, but it's one that's worth reading for encouragement. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for God gives to His beloved even in His sleep. It's vain. It's meaningless. It's purposeless 
to be worrying about financial things because we've got a God who is able to meet our needs even when we're asleep. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't work and it doesn't mean that, and it means that sometimes you even wake them up sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and it doesn't mean that, that uh, you know, we don't go work. We'll talk about that. But the reality of it is, is that God is in perfect control. Total control. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in thee. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, this particular passage springs forward from the, the passage that we started this whole uh, session with. And that is addressing the question as far as uh, finances are concerned. You can't serve God and money. You'll love one and you'll despise the other. You have to pick and choose. And that's why in Matthew 6, 25, it says, For this reason, for this reason I say to you, don't be anxious for your life. Don't worry as to what you're going to eat and what you'll drink, nor what your, your body's going to put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they? Isn't that awesome? You can't love God and money. For this reason, stop worrying about love and money and start loving God. The Bible says that as we go through this, that we're to seek first the kingdom of God. The word seek means to, to, to focus upon, to, to, uh, to focus upon and to press forward continually to seek God's kingdom. He says as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all the rest of these things in life take care of themselves. When God is number one and he's our priority, then you know what? Everything else falls into place. There was a couple that went to financial counselor and they were having some problems. And the counselor asked the man, he said, would you explain to me what the problem is? And the man said this. He said, I've been working, working for my company for 28 years. And I'm 52 years old and I'm afraid I'm going to get laid off. He says, I don't know what else I would do. The counselor said, okay, that's fine. Let me ask you. And he turned to the wife and said, ma'am, could you explain to me what the problem is? And she said, you know what? What he just said to you isn't the problem at all. He says, she said, for 28 years he's worked for that company. For 28 years he's been worried about getting laid off. And for 28 years he's never been laid off. That's the problem. You see how subtle that is? I have a friend who's a financial counselor. He had a man come to him who was 52 years old. Lost everything financially that he ever had. Lost it all. And he was down, man. I mean, he was down. He was depressed. And, and couldn't figure out what was going on in his life. So a friend of mine said, hey, listen, you know what? Let me, let me share a story with you, a true story. He says, you're only 52 years old. He said, I had a guy come in here about, oh, a couple of years ago, and he was 65 years old, and he lost everything that he owned. $12 million worth of assets gone. He said, he came to me, and he was sharing the same story with me. And he was depressed. He was almost suicidal. There was no reason to live anymore. He said, as we began to talk, I said, you know what? Throughout your whole business career, you've been the first person out in front telling everybody, oh, what a blessing God has been in your life. Look how God has blessed this deal, this deal, that deal, the other deal. Look how God has blessed my business. Look how God has blessed me. Isn't God wonderful and great? And he looked at him and said, you know what? In all that time, you were the biggest, hypo you're the biggest hypocrite that I've, that I've come to know. Because it's obvious to me that you didn't mean a word that you said as you were praising God for everything he did for you. And this guy looked at him like, wait a minute. What's, what's all this about? 
He said, well, let me ask you this question. If God would have came to you and said, listen, you know what? For all these years, I've blessed you and I've given you all of this that you've amassed. And now it's time for me to take it back from you. And I want it back. If God would have came to you and said, I need it for other purposes, would you have just given it back to him? And he thought and he said, yeah. Yeah, I would have. He goes, well, that's all that he did. Don't you see? Don't you understand? He gave it to you. You managed it. It was time for him to take it back. He wanted it back. He took it from you. And this guy, was, it was the biggest revelation of his life. Because for the first time in his life, he realized that he had never transferred ownership back to God. He believed it was his. And we already saw that stewardship is the management of God's resources for God-given objectives or goals. So God told him that, hey, I've got some objectives for you, and the way we're going to accomplish these, I'm going to take that $12 million back from you. So he said to him, said, now you're 65 years old. Could you imagine what a guy 35 years old feels like going through the same thing that you went through? Could you imagine what you'll be able to share with this person who's 35 years old? You're 65 years old. They have 30 years still of earning capabilities in front of them, and they think that life has no purpose and meaning anymore because at 35 they've gone through this huge financial reversal. Could you imagine the ministry that you can have to other people to help them see that there's more to life than that, that, that life is worth living even without material things? And for the next five years, this man literally counseled thousands of young people younger than him and helped them to take their focus off of material things and put their trust back onto God. Interesting story, too. Now, God doesn't always work this way, but this guy's in the real estate business and from ages 65 to 70, continued in the real estate business and continued to counsel all these people, telling them that, hey, at 65, my life's not over just because I've lost $12 million. Life's still worth living. Life is still good, and God is still good, and God provides for my needs. And from 65 to 70, he counseled thousands of young men and helped them to see that truth. At the age of 70, he completed one of the largest real estate transactions in the history of the state in which he lived, and his commission on that one transaction alone was $20 million. Wow. But the point of all of it is this. Even if that wasn't the end of the story... God still had a purpose. And his purpose was to help him understand that he was not the owner, that he was merely a manager of the resources that God had given him. Agonizing over our investments, worrying about all the financial things. Let me just help you and save yourself a lot of aggravation and effort. Put your trust in God. Put your trust in God. Number four. And you know what? And this kind of leads to this, actually. If you, if you think about it, in some ways, it leads to this next problem. But the, the fourth uh, sign of the fact that our priorities are kind of messed up, the fourth symptom, so to speak, is that we'll attempt to meet all of our own desires. When we attempt to meet all of our own desires. See, the problem here, in a nutshell, is that, you know what? Some of us want to accumulate as much stuff as we can. It's a sign that our priority systems got messed up. I'll give you an example. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, we read this. But you know, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Isn't that interesting? See, the problem that we have when we don't trust in God is that then we have a tendency maybe to slip to this particular problem, and that is now we need to accumulate as much stuff as we can for ourselves. Because why? Because my security now is in my stuff. My security is in the bank account. My security is in the, uh, the uh, retirement program. My security is in you know, the mutual funds or the stock option. Or my security is in, in my house. Because that's where all the equity is and that's where we're going to, we'll sell it someday and, and we'll retire and we'll take all that. See, my security isn't something tangible other than God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to accumulate everything that we can so that we have something to put our security in that we can put our arms around, that we can look at rather than putting our trust in God. And so all of a sudden that love of money leads us down a path where we can get into all kind of trouble. See, and they've wandered even from the faith. Why? We've already seen that, you know what, some of us, because of our love of money, will act deceitfully so we can get more of it. And how's that wandering from the faith? Well, it's wandering from the faith because God says that we're to be honest and pure in all of our dealings with other people. But then when we start to act deceptively and dishonestly, then we've wandered from the truth that God has given us. And we get ourselves into all kind of trouble. There are people in prison today that are Christians that have manipulated people and deceived people and lied to people for economic gain and they're experiencing the consequences of their actions. Hey, will they be in heaven one day? If they put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, they will be. But you know what? Maybe the rest of their days here on earth they are going to be spent behind bars. See, there's consequences to our action. And thank God we don't lose our salvation because we violate godly principles, but we certainly have a price to pay and we have a lot of grief that we have to deal with as well. We need to recognize and understand that this lack of this contentment, a sense that I need more than what I already have. What was that man's problem that I read? He needed more than he already had. How much did he have? He probably had more than he ever thought he'd ever have, but when he had it, he realized it wasn't enough, so the answer must be, I want more. We see that all the time. I saw it when I was dealing with professional athletes who were making more money than they ever thought they'd ever make. And the answer to their problems in life was, I need more. I only got a $3 million deal and so-and-so got a $5 million deal and then they got a $17 million deal and I want to renegotiate my deal because they just got a deal and I just signed it last week, but I want another deal. Why? Because my contentment is in what I think that I'm worth based on what people say that I'm worth, not on what God, who God says I'm worth. See, and it's so elusive, you'll never have a sense of worth. If that's what you think is going to make you worth something. Now, the question is, what's a sign that our priorities are messed up and that, that uh, maybe we're attempting to meet all our own desires? Let me give you a couple things. Take it for what it's worth. Now, in Ecclesiastes 5, we saw that, you know what? Uh, we'll begin to hoard or we'll begin to store up at the expense of meeting the needs of those around us. Or we'll begin to go and meet our own selfish desires at the expense of the needs of those around us. One of the areas that I see this to be particularly true is in the area where we're dealing with a single mom. Single mom trying to raise her children. The dad's gone. Ex-husband's gone somewhere. He's out, and he's got the financial capability to take care of himself and to meet his desires. And what he does is he forgets he's got a financial responsibility to meet the needs of his family. Food. Shelter and clothing. With these things, we shall be content. But we see it, don't we? We see it in our culture where some of us are, are not meeting the needs of people around us because we want to go and accumulate for us the desires of our heart. Interesting. In a word, it just boils down to this. Selfish. 
selfish. I'm going to try to keep it as on the lowest shelf that I can so that no one will miss anything that I say. But if that's you and your desire is to accumulate to meet your desires while those around you go without their needs met, you are selfish. And you're wrong before God. And you need to know it. God's priority system is simple. Number one, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Number two, you love your neighbor as yourself. And in that priority system, all of the law and the prophets or the whole Bible is summarized. Love God first. Love your neighbor what? As yourself. God never has to tell us to love ourselves. That's a given. You ever notice that? Husbands are to love their wives what? As they love themselves. Don't have to be told love yourself. Go ahead now, love yourself. No, no. Love your neighbor as you already love yourself. I had a friend that, uh, it's, some of us just need to slow down and look at the economic impact of some of our indulgences, but I had a friend who, who now, 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 I understand something here. Now, if I give you an illustration, don't say that, oh, what he said is, is wrong. Don't miss the principle here. I had a friend who bought a boat. Now, some of you are going, buying a boat is wrong. No, no, no. Would you please relax and just listen to what the story is first. He bought a boat. Now, he was asked, why did you buy the boat? And you know what his reason for buying the boat was? What? Because I always wanted a boat. All right. Or he needed the boat. Everybody needs a boat because, you know, you can't get to work in Southern California without a boat. <laughs> oh, we now need some water in our rivers. And then, you know, whatever, use for a boat. Um, you know, you think we're in Venice or something. Um, but anyway, he bought a boat. Why? Because he always wanted a boat. Now, there's always a problem with that, as, it'll, as you'll see in the story. But he bought a boat because he always wanted a boat. Then he sat down and started to figure out how much this was costing him. He's like, well, he financed it. He had to put some down, paying interest payments on it. Then he had to register it. Then he had to insure it. Then in the neighborhood, they couldn't store it, so they had to get a place to store it. And he said he started adding all up. And you know how many times? They used the boat two times a year. Then they had to use it. And there's a use expense that goes along with that. But he used the boat two times a year. After it was all said and done, and even after his wife said, I really don't think we need a boat, the conclusion of the story was this. He figured out they could have just rented a yacht once a, a, a year for a week and it saved them a whole lot of aggravation and got that little boat urge out of his system. You see what I'm saying? But isn't that sometimes the way that it works? Why? Because I always wanted one. You know, sometimes we need to recognize the fact that, hey, you know what? If we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our heart. And one, well, this is just a side note here, but the next best thing to own a boat is having a friend that owns a boat. <laughs> and will let you borrow the boat so that then they can say, see, it's a ministry. So if you know anybody that has a boat and you want to use their boat, that's a good little way to get them to give you the boat to use. Hey, you know, you should really share what God has blessed you with. Hey, take it for what it's worth. Number five. Number five, we're rolling now. Number five, we're rolling now. Oh, man, we're rolling now. Okay, here we go. Number five, accelerate means to acquire riches. You know what that means in just simple, plain language? I want to get rich quick. 
fast as I can. An inheritance quickly gained at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Proverbs 20, 21. A faithful man will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs 28, 20. The warning is simply this. Your priorities are messed up and so are mine when our priority is to, I want to make it quick. It ain't going to happen. It just doesn't work that way. You're not going to get rich quick. Every get-rich-quick scheme is packaged very nicely. This is why I have a problem with people who want to buy lottery tickets. Some people say, well, the Bible doesn't really say anything. Thou shalt not purchase lottery tickets. No, it doesn't say that. And it doesn't say thou art an idiot either. But, you know, some things you've got to read in between the lines here. But the thing is that what's the purpose of people who want to buy lottery tickets? Now, I know all you lottery ticket people are going, I hate this when you get so personal. But, but think about this for a second. Why do people want to buy lottery tickets? Because they want to get rich quick. Why? Because they don't like working. That's it. And the first thing that everybody says after someone wins the lottery, are you going to quit your job? You know? Well, yeah, because I like my job, but if I go to work every day, everyone's going to be wanting to borrow money for the lunch truck. Um, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like everybody, I mean, that's it, right? How do you know if you've fallen into the get-rich-quick trap? Three, three simple symptoms, okay? Number one, you begin to risk money. Number one, you begin to risk money you can't afford to lose. You're desperate, you're rolling the dice, Hey, you know, we're taking payroll to Vegas and we're putting it on black. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, oh, we, we're in trouble. We've got to work it out somehow. You know, and, uh, and, and you're risking money you can't afford to lose. And you're lose, usually risking money you can't afford to lose in an area that you don't know anything about. Duh. Because if you knew about it, you wouldn't do it. But it's always packaged nice and neat, isn't it? Hey, uh, this was a fraud. Postal inspectors report the five mail scams that seem to be the most popular. If a letter says you're a winner, you're not. <laughs> five biggest lies told to consumers according to postal inspectors. Number one, you are a guaranteed winner of a valuable prize. This ploy asked the so-called winner to pay for chemically inert vitamins, cheap home security systems, water purifiers, or contribute to a fake charity before getting what turns out to be the booby prize. Number two, this chain letter is legal. Sooner or later, everyone gets one of these. The inspector says, but after you pay for copying and mailing, it's one of life's biggest losers. Also, any chain letter that asks for money is illegal when sent through the mail. Now, let me just throw one out here that all of us have probably been um, affected by at some point or another in Southern California. It's the pyramid scheme. The pyramid scheme basically works like this. It works like this. Hey, listen up here. You give me $500, I'll give you $10,000 in two weeks. Hey, $500, you give me $10,000 in two weeks. That's a pretty good deal. How are you going to do that? Well, here's how we're going to do it. You're going to get all your friends and family and your neighbors. And you're going to get them here. We can give them $500. They're all going to get $500. You're going to work your way up to the top. You're going to get your $10,000. you are going to get out before you get thrown in jail. Okay, here we go. Right? The people are going, hey, oh, that sounds like a great deal. $500 turns into $10,000 in two weeks. What a deal. Yeah, well, let me sell you this little magic box. You put in a dollar, crank it out, and a hundred comes out the other side. Hey, how much is the box? $50,000, but you got all day. You can just keep cranking those ones through there. What is wrong with us? Hello, anybody home, the light's on, the elevator didn't get to the top floor. I mean, I have people that call me with stuff like this. I had, I had guys in Iran's Bible study. 
That, that was, this, was the, this was the focal point of our Bible study. Now, you got to remember, collectively in this room, we're probably, oh, I don't know, maybe $100 million worth of contracts sitting there saying, hey, I turned 500 into 10,000 in two weeks. This is a great deal. You ought to think about getting in. What? What, is there something wrong with that? Oh, let's just talk about it for a little bit here. See, the problem is, and, and this is the third, third sign that you're in trouble, is that you make these kind of decisions without getting any consultation, without getting any counsel. You just jump at it because you don't want somebody, and it's always, well, you don't want somebody else to get in before you and take your deal. So, it's, you know, that's how it's packaged, right? Hello, you know what? Hey, there is safety in a multitude of counselors. So I told these people this Bible study when I said, listen, you know what? That's as illegal as can be. If you don't believe me, call the district attorney's office and just ask them if somebody asks you for $500 and promises you $10,000 in two weeks, and this is how it works, ask them if that's illegal. And they were just like shocked. Why would that be illegal? Well, hello, would somebody please listen up for a minute? Because how do you think you're getting $10,000 from people who are given $500? When the music stops, there's not enough chairs left to sit down. Do you understand but it's not like you held a gun to their head, but they were, you know, but it's the same thing. It's fraud. It's deceit. It doesn't work. A faithful man will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. Some of you have been burned by people who preyed upon your desire to hit it big quick. And it's no one's fault but yours. Okay? Okay. Number six. Hey, we're rolling. Oh, you ever hear that song, Don't Fall in Love with a Dreamer? I, you know, every time I think about this point, I think of that. Don't fall in love with a dreamer. Why? Because it'll always break your heart. There's nothing wrong with dreaming dreams, but there is something wrong with scheming schemes. All right? Okay, number six. And this kind of goes hand in hand. But this is where our priorities are messed up too, because we have an apathetic approach toward work. We don't want to work. We want to hit it rich quick. We want to just go ahead and uh, we want to um, yeah, we want to go ahead and just hit it rich quick. We don't want to have to go to work. We don't want to have to earn a living. We just want it handed to us. We want to watch those balls roll down that lottery number and go oh. Proverbs twenty one twenty five through twenty six. The sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. The sluggard, simple, easy to understand term, is the lazy person. The lazy person. You know the lazy person. How can you identify a lazy person? The lazy person works harder at avoiding work than working. Did you ever see anybody like that? They work harder at avoiding work than what it would it take just to do the work. Man, this is a whole session in itself, so we'll get back to this. But the point I want to make right now is that, you know what? Work is good. Commendable, rewardable. God will bless you if you work. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, Let him who will not work, let him do without. I think, just a suggestion, I think it should be the sign on any one of our social service institutions that want to just hand people something for nothing. Now, I'm not saying people don't deserve help in times where they need help. That's what the system is designed for. But I'm saying people that have become 
victims of that system that takes away the integrity of the work ethic as God designed it. Work is good. Laziness is not. Number seven. That's all we'll say about that, but I am coming back to that. So in case you're thinking about it, I'll let you know ahead of time. You can invite that person with you, okay? All right. That's it. That's it. If you can get them out of bed to be here. Or even to listen to the tape, because that'll be a lot of effort too. But anyway, and the last, the last one is this, number seven, and for those who doubted me, ha. Um, oh, and look at this one, an attitude of superiority. Oops. I'm sorry, forgive me. Kind of a haughty attitude. You know what that is? It's a, it, it, that's that, you know, here's where you know your priority system's messed up. When you think you're better than other people because you got more stuff than them. You follow that? That attitude of, you know what? The sun rises and sets on me because look how much money I make and look where I park and look at my bank account and look at my watch and look at my ring and look at my dress and look at my suit and look, look, look at me. (laughs) James 5, 1 through 5, God says, now listen to me. Listen to me, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Hey, some of you need to pay up on the bill you owe your gardener, huh? Um, or your pool man. I got a friend who's a pool man. He said, make sure I throw that out there. <laughs> but, and, hey, and, and there's no, there's no you know, self-interest here. We don't have a pool, so I'm not even getting a free cleaning out of it. So, uh, it says, look, look the, the, way, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying against you. The cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Wow. What an indictment, isn't it? See, there's a whole bunch of ways to obtain money. But we need to understand something. First Corinthians 4, 7 says this. Hey, what do you have? What do you have that hasn't been given to you? Now, some of you are saying, nothing's been given to me. I've worked for everything I got. Yeah, and who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the health to go to work? Who gave you the opportunity and open doors for you to get the job that you have? Who kept you employed? Who gave you the intelligence to make decisions that have benefited you somehow or another financially? Don't you understand? It's all back to the basics. God owns it all. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? Who do you think you are? That you can have an attitude of superiority to other people who don't have as much as you do as if somehow you're better than them. Don't you understand? The question that you need to ask is, God, what should I be doing with these resources of yours in a way that is glorifying and pleasing to you? That's the question. Do you love God or do you love money? See, loving God means this, putting it all together. Number one, you pay your debts. You do it with the right attitude. You do it right away. If you have the ability to do it today, you go out and you do it and get it done today and take care of business. 
And it means you also recognize your accountability before God. Number two, it means that you're honest in all your financial dealings. It means if you're selling a car, you disclose everything you know. Selling a house, the same thing. You're applying for a job, you don't lie, cheat on your resume. You're going to buy a house, you're going to go get a loan, then you don't lie on your application. It means that you're honest in everything that you do. And when you're conducting business, you deliver the product that you say you're going to deliver for the price that you've agreed to deliver it and the terms and conditions in which you've agreed. It means you're honest in everything that you do. Number three, it means you trust in the, in the Lord and not in money and not in interest rates, and not in your bank account, and not in your savings, and not in your pension, and not in your equity, but you trust the Lord in everything. It means also that you use your finances to help meet the needs of other people, while often having to deny your own selfish indulgences. That's what it means if you love God. That's what it means if money's not your God. It means that you work hard. And you don't look for get-rich-quick schemes. It means you earn your wages. And you thank God for the opportunity that he gives you to go and work for a living. And it means you praise God for his blessings. Not being arrogant, as if somehow you're better than someone else. Because don't forget, when money fails, and it will... When moth and rust destroys, and it will. When thieves break in and steal, and they will. When there's nothing left of the financial situation, you know what God's going to ask you? How did you obtain it, and what did you do with it? That's all that he cares about. Not how much do you have. How did you obtain it, and what did you do once you had it? Wow. No man can serve two masters. You love one or you love the other. You either love God or you love money, don't you? Pretty simple. You know what? What I found in life is that God will do whatever he has to do to get that point across because he wants to be number one in our life. He really does. One by one, God took them from me, all the things that I valued most, till I was empty-handed and every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highway grieving in my rags and poverty till I heard his voice inviting Lift your empty hands to me. So I turned my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. Wow. Father, we just thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for the relevant word that you give us. We thank you for the simple, practical truths that we've been confronted with. Now, God, the problem is, what do we do with it? We thank you also for the conviction of your Spirit who lives within us as we come to trust you and put our trust in you. We know there's some areas in our life that aren't right in the areas of finances that we need to make right. God, just give us the strength to do it. Take that step to put you back number one in, in, in our life. And God, we just thank you and praise you for the blessings and the result of just trusting you. And the peace that surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus as we put all our trust and faith in you and not in the, the momentary value of, of money or finances. And we just thank you and praise you for this series that we've been able to deal with some things on an intimate basis. And we look forward to what you have to teach us in the future. In Christ's name, amen.